as we begin our lesson for today. Join with me in prayer. O Lord, our God, we give thanks to you for your deeds of power and grace that you have worked in our lives and in the lives of our friends and also in the lives of those who have lived before us. Uh, We pray that you would teach and instruct us through uh, these deeds of old, uh, reflection upon uh, the, the work of the saints in the past and of your word applied uh, to life. We pray that you would teach and instruct us that we might offer to you a worship that is pleasing in your sight through Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen. Uh, today we come to Presbyterians and the Great Awakening. Uh, we've been looking at lessons from American Presbyterian church history, a history of uh, the Presbyterian church in America, uh, beginning with the uh, initial immigration to the New World, the founding of the first presbytery in Philadelphia in 1706, the career of Francis McKemmy, and last week we looked at the adopting of the Westminster Standards, as well as the uh, greater migration of Scots-Irish that picked up in the 1700s after 1717, and with uh, so many new people and an increase in numbers, there was also the need to shore up uh, the, the guardrails for doctrinal orthodoxy to make sure everyone was on the same page, and that was even tested, as we saw last time in the uh, case of Samuel Hemphill in Philadelphia, uh, where he was preaching uh, errors, pretty serious errors, and was held accountable, um, even though Benjamin Franklin and others were, were complaining about such a trial, uh, try, seeking to defend him, uh, that they, they held the course. Now, about that same time then, uh, picks up a, a work, a, an event, in the 1730s and 40s, especially known as the Great Awakening. <clears throat> Great Awakening. And that would sweep over uh, North America and um, Great Britain, uh, the British Isles, and uh, would be an international movement. And Presbyterians would, would have their part in this movement as well. But let me begin by reading a passage of Scripture from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Verses 5 through 9. There the Apostle Paul wrote, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. And this passage is relevant for the topic today for several reasons. First of all, we'll talk about revival. And revival is God's work in converting sinners. He uses means, you know, through the preaching of the gospel, like Paul and Apollos, ministers of the gospel, and the word is preached, and They plant in water, but God is the one who gives the growth, who converts sinners, who then continues to sanctify us, revives us, um, brings us to salvation. And this was a a great work in the 1700s. But also we'll find that there was, um, in the excitement and the enthusiasm of the movement, some excesses and even some divisions. 
And this is actually what Paul was writing about, that there was divisions within the church at Corinth. And um, exhorting them to see Apollos and Paul not as different leaders to follow after in a partisan way, uh, to pit them against each other, but rather to see them as as one, uh, that they serve the same God, and and, uh, that their work is one, uh, and building the same house, working in the same field. Uh, Fortunately, you will also see uh, that the Presbyterians, though they divided, they came back together in a reunion in uh, 1758. But I'm getting ahead of myself. And the Great Awakening, uh, the precursor to it, is that in the early 1700s, there was, by all accounts, a, a low state of religion in the colonies, as well as in the British Isles, we might even go broader in in Europe, that uh, with the chilling winds of the Enlightenment and perhaps a little trauma from the wars of the previous century, that uh, there was a a chilling effect uh, on religion and on on devotion to the Lord, um, especially in settled areas. Uh, also, in, in other parts of the colonies, there were newer arrivals. And we talked about how so many Scotch-Irish, for example, came to America that the ministers had a hard time keeping up with them. And so there were also those who were unchurched, who didn't have access to the regular ministry of, of uh, preaching and, and discipline and, and sacraments. Um, and so that, that would lead to a lower state of, of religion as well. Uh, the rationalistic and moralistic trends of the Enlightenment, they showed up in the preaching of Samuel Hemphill, but that was kind of the air that was being breathed at the time. Uh, let's return just to natural principles. Let's uh, go to the laws of nature that perhaps all these denominations can agree on. We don't want to divide over doctrine. Let's just try to be good. And uh, that, was, that was the trends. Now, it, on one front, that was opposed by holding ministers to confessional orthodoxy as in that disciplined case. Let's, let's affirm the truth and hold fast to the faith. But it was also going to be opposed by emphasizing uh, the supernatural, by emphasizing conviction and conversion and the cross, um, by, by the life of religion, um, and uh, to seek to revive uh, the dead through God's appointed means. Now, There had already been this emphasis on heart religion, on personal religion, in the Puritan movement, in the midst of the established Church of England. They wanted to oppose hypocrisy and to emphasize the importance of of, uh, conversion and a personal uh, religion and personal devotion to Christ, faith. Um, This had carried further, arguably to an extreme in some ways, by the Puritans in New England, where they set up a congregational church government that tried to almost institutionalize this emphasis on uh, a certain expectation for for conversion and uh, a testimony of one's conversion to become uh, a church member. There were also pietistic movements, and they called themselves that, pietism, in... uh, the continent of Europe, in Germany and in Holland in the 1600s that would emphasize the importance of personal religion, of small group Bible study and prayer in the context of what was perceived as perhaps dead orthodoxy. Well, all that's kind of precursor to the movement in the 1730s and 40s that would sweep over uh, the British Isles and the colonies 
uh, that was called the Great Awakening. It was partly due to preaching that emphasized conviction, conversion, and the cross of Christ. Uh, But that didn't explain it completely, um, because people had been preaching those things in places like New England um, without such dramatic results. But during this time, the Spirit was poured out through the same normal means of preaching and prayer in a more abundant manner, leading to the conversion of many and the revival of religion. Revival wasn't something that they set up like, oh, let's have a revival. Uh, It was something that God did uh, through the preaching of the Word. But along with this, uh, there were some excesses, some errors, some false conversions along with the good. And like I said, this would lead to a division within the Presbyterian Church. But let me go through some of the timeline here. Uh, One important event in 1726 was the founding of the Log College by William Tennant, one of these Scotch-Irish men who came to Pennsylvania and seeing the need for more ministers, and uh, the Presbyterians didn't have their own college yet in the colonies, he set up one in his house. And it was called the Log College by his uh, detractors, uh, but he started to teach uh, raise up ministers at his home in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, just north of uh, Philadelphia. Uh, that work was going on, and then in 1734 to 35, the first revival uh, breaks out in Northampton, Massachusetts, under the preaching of Jonathan Edwards. In 1736, uh, there are some in the Presbyterian Church that became. Uh, rather concerned with some of the tendencies of the tenants and the, uh, those who were, came from the log college and uh, suspecting that the training might not be quite up to par. And so there was a f- special committee by the Senate for examining men trained in the private academies, i.e. tenants log college and others that were started by his students. And they took this a little ill. This was the Senate... Uh, kind of regulating the presbyteries and uh, targeting them, and so they resented that, protested it, and the New Brunswick Presbytery ignored it and just continued to ordain them regardless. So you can start to see some uh, division forming. In 1739 through 1742, George Whitfield makes his first preaching tour in the colonies. And this is probably the peak of the Great Awakening through uh, that time of ministry. He would continue to make other preaching tours uh, throughout the uh, 1700s up to 1770. And others like Gilbert Tennant, uh, William Tennant's son, uh, and James Davenport and others will preach with him, preach alongside him as they tour the colonies. Thousands of people. Uh, gathering to hear George Whitfield, who was an Anglican, um, Calvinist Anglican, although of this, uh, of this emphasis seeking to uh, stir people up out of hypocrisy or out of lethargy to embrace Christ. In 1740, Gilbert Tennant preached a sermon called The Danger of an Unconverted Ministry. Uh, he had begun to resent the pushback that other ministers were giving Uh, against this revival um, and preached what later he even recognized to be uh, a sermon that was was not uh, right in the way that he treated other ministers and and, uh, claiming that 
perhaps the majority of them, were in a carnal state, uh, in, in an unconverted condition, uh, not because of uh, some you know, scandalous sin that could be proved and subject to church discipline, but, but more so from their perhaps lack of enthusiasm, their opposition or criticism of parts of the revival and um, other marks such as these. And then a couple months later, even more inflammatory, is he and a younger man, Samuel Blair, read complaints of the same kind to the Senate, uh, saying that you know, many of the men here in the Senate are unconverted, and these are reasons why we think that's true. And that, you can imagine, uh, would stir a bit of uh, controversy. Um, later on, uh, Charles Hodge would comment on some of these events. He says that in 1740, Gilbert Tennant read a paper before the Senate of Philadelphia to prove that many of his brethren were rotten-hearted hypocrites, assigning reasons for that belief that would not have justified the exclusion of any private member from the communion of the church. About the same time, he published his famous sermon on an unconverted ministry, which was one of the most terrible pieces of denunciation in the English language. The picture there drawn, he afterwards very clearly intimated what was never indeed doubted, was intended for a large portion of his own ministerial brethren. The great sinfulness of this sensuous spirit and his own offenses in this respect, Mr. Tennant afterwards very penitently acknowledged. Um, And one thing that kind of brought him to a, a better understanding was to see then some other ministers like James Davenport go even to further excesses and then realize, oh, I guess this, this can get out of hand and start to become uh, a little wiser with age. But in 1741, this came to a head and the Senate adopted a protest against the ministers of the New Brunswick Presbytery, uh, basically excising them from the Senate. These guys aren't listening to us. They're taking our members away from us, saying that they should leave us because we're unconverted. Uh, we, we can't have ministerial communion with them. And so that was the origin of the old side, new side division. The Senate being the old side and those excluded being the new side. Even at the next year, there were attempts to reunite. Um, Very quickly, even Gilbert Tennant started to criticize things that he had formerly practiced. And um, the sides would take a number of years to reunite, um, but they would also continue uh, their ministries. And the new side especially would have a lot of energy and fervor and a lot of college, for example, to train up ministers to send out uh, one of these new side ministers that would be a missionary was named David Brainerd. And David Brainerd uh, would be a missionary to the Mohican and Delaware tribes. Uh, he would die a few years later, but uh, he would prove quite influential from a book published in 1749 by Jonathan Edwards, an account of the life of the late Reverend Mr. David Brainerd. And so not only would he be influential in the actual work he did to the Indians, but also uh, the influence of that book in stirring up others to become missionaries for a century or more to come would, would prove influential. In 1745, the new side organized the Senate of New York. So now you had two senates. Again, so that's like kind of their general assembly at the time, the level above Presbytery, the Senate of New York, the Senate of Philadelphia was the old side. Well, that log college uh, was replaced in 1746 by 
the College of New Jersey. They got a charter from New Jersey, and it moved around the first several years. Um, Newside ministers supporting it. In 1756, it moved to Princeton, and it became uh, what's now Princeton University, uh, and would become very important as a training ground for ministers uh, throughout the 1700s. In 1747, uh, there was a man named Samuel Davies, a young man trained up in Delaware and Pennsylvania, that would start preaching in Virginia in 1747. Um, and actually, there were, there were Scots-Irish in Western Virginia that both Old Side and New Side administered to, but he even started preaching to those who had left the Anglican Church, uh, influenced by George Whitfield and others, and was preaching just north of Richmond. And he had to work uphill because some of the earlier New Side ministers down there hadn't gotten license for their preaching and had kind of uh, come into conflict with the governor, who was Scottish and had some sympathies for Presbyterians, but um, was not so sure about these New Side ministers. And so Samuel Davies was very careful to get the proper license to argue his case for religious liberty and toleration much as Francis McKemmy had done previously, um, trying not to, uh, to oppose those who were indeed Christians in the Anglican Church, but seeking to save the lost wherever they were and to, to support the uh, Presbyterians that were in multiple churches. Later it would take like five or more ministers to replace Samuel Davies because he would be ministering to this congregation and this one and this one and this one. Um, and Hanover Presbytery, uh, would be formed, which would be the Mother Presbytery of the South, which would continue to send out ministers in Virginia and beyond. Well, in 1749, Gilbert Tennant published a book called The Plea for the Peace of Jerusalem, urging his new side ministers to reunite with the old side, um, having a little more moderate view now about uh, indeed seeking revival, seeking conversion, but uh, not being quick to judge others and uh, to uh, recognize that the old side weren't opposing revival. They were opposing certain excesses and practices associated with it. And uh, this helped reconcile the two parties. Finally, in 1758, the two sides united, forming the Senate of uh, New York and Philadelphia. And so... Uh, they, they combined the two, kept both names. Both sides had moderated in the meantime. Also, that Log College was now a more respectable college of New Jersey. and It wasn't a private academy anymore, so that wasn't as much of an issue. Uh, their plan of union affirmed their common commitment to the standards, that they had uh, both adopted the same doctrinal standards and could agree on that. It wasn't a, a doctrinal difference so much that had divided them, that they found an agreement on the marks of true revival, that even if there were some things, you know, things that would happen at the same time that would not be true, that when these things happen, this is a good thing that we should seek out to see people not trust in themselves, but rather be convicted of their sins and turn to Christ and, and uh, be, be converted, that this is a good thing. And then also guidelines, practical guidelines, which we still use today. Um, guidelines for how to protest the action of a judici judiciatory, you know, like a presbytery. If the presbytery does an action, you don't protest the individuals who did it, but the action of the presbytery. 
Um, and you can, uh, if you have something against an individual, to press charges uh, in an orderly manner where you can prove it or disprove it. Um, to, to respect synodical authority, to respect presbytery jurisdictions, um, and also to have standards for examination of candidates that would look at both learning, skill, orthodoxy, and what was called experimental acquaintance of religion. Now, do you know what they mean by experimental acquaintance with religion? Does that mean they're scientists and they're like, oh, let me add a little more religion and test it out? What do you think experimental acquaintance with religion means? Right, right. Experience is probably the word that we would recognize better today. But, but um, that, that they themselves personally have uh, this, and, uh, this personal acquaintance with religion, that uh, they uh, in themselves embrace this and have God's work uh, in their life. And meanwhile, the new site had grown, so when they reunited... Of the 94 ministers that were in this new synod, uh, 70 of them came from the new side. Uh, and so uh, they, they reunited, but that group that had been excluded originally and others had joined with them uh, now was the larger uh, group by far. And one reason is they had less restrictions. They had the college. They had uh, perhaps a little more enthusiasm and um, had grown in, in the meantime, done a little better job in trying to catch up with, uh, with all of the uh, people that had come to the new world and, and also in, in preaching to the lost. So any questions before I look at negatives and positives of the Great Awakening? Um, the Great Awakening, a lot of its effects would continue throughout the 1700s up to the American Revolution. Really, the peak was in the 1730s and 40s, but uh, the same preachers continued to be preaching in a you know, similar way in the 50s and 60s and 70s um, uh, as, as it led up to the American Revolution. Um, there were some negatives, which I've already alluded to. <clears throat> some that were pointed out was disorderly behavior and worship sometimes either being tolerated or encouraged or too highly valued. You know, is it a good thing when people start rolling on the floor in agony in the middle of the service? Should that be encouraged? Is it a good thing or tolerated or trying to you know, maybe suppress that? Is that a sign of conversion? Um, you know, it's, it's good to see people not falling asleep and, you know, being affected by the word, but is, also would go to excesses. And scripture does tell us that things should be done decently in good order. Um, it's all right to be emotional when the word impacts you, but uh, it would also go to a disruptive excess. And some were merely excited and uh, not, not actually, you know, having received the word in, uh, in a true way. Other leaders, or some leaders held, so secondly, some leaders held an errant view of the Spirit's leading. Uh, Hodge says there there was from the first a strong leaven of enthusiasm manifesting itself in regard paid to impulses, inspirations, visions, and the pretended power of discerning spirits. So not so much Jonathan Edwards and Gilbert Tennant, but 
uh, George Whitfield and especially James Davenport. Uh, Whitfield, quote, had such an idea of what scriptures mean by the guidance of the Spirit as to suppose that by suggestions, impressions, or sudden recollection of texts of the Bible, the Christian's duty was divinely revealed, even as to the minutest circumstance, and that uh, future events could be thus made known. Uh, You ever come across that in evangelicalism today? Like the Lord told me to do this. I felt really strongly, and uh, so the Lord was telling me to do this. Um, This is still something that that we would find today. Some went went even further to claim that they had a discerning spirit where they could uh, kind of by by their inner impulse recognize if someone was converted or not. You can imagine how that would would, uh, cause trouble. Right, right. If it's, if it's, well, I was thinking about stealing, but then I remembered thou shalt not steal, I, that is God's word, and it, it, through his providence being brought to my memory, uh, that would be one thing. It'd be a little different if all of a sudden I thought about David and, and his friends, you know, going to the Philistines, and that means I should go to this town and, and preach the word. Well, maybe that's a good idea, but that might not be God telling you to do so. Yeah. Um, there was also a tendency in some of an overly critical spirit, um, censoriousness, and we would, might call it judgmentalism, being too quick to rashly judge the state of others, or even oneself. Sometimes there was a almost unhealthy introspection, which would even throw some of the tenants into a coma for a couple days and you know, went to um, perhaps some unhealthy uh, extremes. Um, but also could be applied to others in, in a way that was not uh, charitable. Although the tenets, for example, rec- you know, became more balanced o- over time and recognized some of that um, excess. Related to this was sometimes divisiveness towards other ministers who opposed them. Um, again, these are helpful for us to remember that when we are excited about something, you know, to be careful that we're not uh, uncharitable to others. There was also an overly precise expectation of a certain conversion experience for everyone, uh, that, that there was first going to be some law work in which one would despair of, of any hope and uh, be, be thoroughly convicted that, that you are lost, and, and then you get to a place where you embrace Christ and you find relief and assurance in Christ, and that this would have to happen for you to be sure of someone's salvation. Now, that could be the process of someone's conversion if, if they are lost and they should be convicted and, and converted. Um, but it was more the, the chronological progression uh, being expected of, of everyone in, a, in the same way and then being skeptical of your own or other salvation if you didn't quite follow that same uh, chronology. Uh, was I really convicted that I was lost strong enough before I embraced Christ um, and uh, going beyond what Scripture might require us uh, 
in expecting a certain progression of what a conversion might look like. Um, and kind of the presumption that all church members are lost unless they can recount that experience. Related to that, uh, sixthly and lastly, there was a changed approach to the children of the covenant. It became common to presume that they were unregenerate until they experienced a crisis and conversion experience. Now, that had already become common in Puritan New England, causing tensions that led to the halfway covenant, and that's kind of a topic for another time. But among Presbyterians, this would become more common in the Great Awakening. Uh, the older Reformed view was that the children of believers should be regarded by a judgment of charity as regenerate, as those with seeds of faith and repentance. Not necessarily that they were so, but like any other member of the visible church, that, that's how they're treated, and um, rather than the, the other way of presuming that they are unregenerate. Uh, after all, we, we baptize them. Um, we don't baptize heathens. Uh, the original directory of public worships, worship said of them, they are Christians and federally holy before baptism, and therefore are they baptized. Uh, so according to the judgment of, of charity, again, we don't know the heart, uh, but that they are treated as Christians uh, unless they show uh, otherwise. And so admission to the Lord's Supper was described in the Westminster Standards in terms of not being ignorant or wicked, being of the age and ability to examine themselves of the knowledge of Christ, faith in him, repentance, love, and new obedience, uh, not in terms of a crisis and conversion um, that would be expected of all. So one old side minister in Philadelphia, Jedediah Andrews, wrote in a letter in, 15, in 1741, a, pre a prevailing rule to try converts is that, that if you don't know when you were without Christ and unconverted, etc., you have no interest in Christ. Let your love and your practice be what they may. Which rule, as it is unscriptural, so I am of the mind, will cut off nine and ten, if not ninety-nine and a hundred, of the good people in the world that have a pious education. Uh, so the idea of seeing if you're truly converted is if you can remember a time when you weren't converted, uh, which is not a biblical standard um, and would eliminate many people who were raised up in the faith and don't know a time when they didn't believe in Christ. Um, they, sh of course, should repent and believe like everyone else and continue in that. Uh, but you don't, have to, um, you don't have to experience being unconverted and that despair and being worked into that by the minister before you can believe that you are converted. Any questions on, on that? I might have spent a little more time on the negatives simply because they're less talked about generally. But I don't want that to detract from the fact that they were great positives and that in the main, this was a work of, of God stirring up people. It held back uh, the, the deadness that had preceded it. Some of the positives of the Great Awakening is that the Spirit worked powerfully through the Word that many were stirred from apathy and were truly converted. Uh, ministers would, would find uh, hundreds of people inquiring about the state of their soul and, and seeking salvation in Christ. And um, there was, secondly, a resurgence of a Puritan emphasis on heart and personal religion. That church in Virginia that Samuel Davies had come to initially started as a reading room where they would read Martin Luther and the Puritans, and that eventually became a church. Um, 
Thirdly, there was a renewed emphasis and clarity concerning sin and cross and grace and justification by faith alone, that you should not trust in your own works, but rather in Jesus Christ and find salvation only in him. Uh, It was very Calvinistic in the preaching. Um, uh, Arminian emphasis would come in later revivals and through the Wesleys, but for the most part in America was was uh, Dutch Reformed, was Puritan, uh, like Jonathan Edwards, was Presbyterian, like Gilbert Tennant, uh, George Whitfield, emphasizing that we trust not in ourselves, but, but wholly in Christ and are converted by him. The church, fourthly, was enlivened with greater fervor, uh, diligence. Its worship was renewed. Singing was renewed. Singing was improved. Um, instead of the decline of singing in the practice of lining out where the minister or someone leads, sings the line and everyone responds, which was necessary at first, but it had become kind of a tradition even though it wasn't needed because now people did know how to read, um, that they learned to sing better and uh, would even sing as they are going down the road and singing in their homes. And that's a whole other story. Uh, but they had renewed uh, enthusiasm about their Savior Fifthly, there arose a diligence to save the lost. So people like Samuel Davies and David Brainerd and others are going to the settlers, going to the Indians, uh, seeking to promote the cause of, of missions, church planting. Sixthly, the chilling winds of the Enlightenment were held back, or at least prevented from overcoming the faith. Uh, that uh, there was a renewed belief in, in the supernatural, in atonement through Jesus Christ and not merely a republishing of the principles of nature, uh, that you must be born again. And it also lastly gave the people in all the colonies a shared experience and shared religious principles across denominations. It's estimated that by 1770, about 80% of the American colonists had heard George Whitfield preach at least once. Imagine in a day before TV, before radio, how would anyone have such a common experience across all these colonies? Um, now they had a similar religious terminology, emphasis on, on one's personal uh, religion, and this would also have perhaps some uh, political influences as we lead up to the American Revolution, that they saw themselves united in this way, an emphasis on personal responsibility, um, but most importantly, religious freedom and a, a devotion to Christ. So, Presbyterians had their part in the Great Awakening. It led to a division, not only in Presbyterians, the Congregationalists had their divisions. Uh, the, the Anglicans would later divide in Methodists and Anglicans over uh, these same uh, issues. Uh, but, at least among the Presbyterians, they also reunited after the the, the main wave was over and continued to go forth as uh, the American Presbyterian Church, uh, the Synod of New York and Philadelphia. All right, well, let's close in prayer. And next week, we'll look at Americans, uh, sorry, Presbyterians and a new country, uh, the American Revolution, uh, the Constitution, the uh, founding of the General Assembly, of the uh, Presbyterian Church in the United States of America. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your kindness and grace to us and your grace to which we owe our salvation. 
that by nature we are dead in trespasses and sins, that we are unable to save ourselves. We pray that you would continue to convict us of our sins, and that we would continue to, uh, to view them with grief and hatred, and so turn from them, not resting in ourselves or our works, but to trust in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. We pray that you would work among those who are lost, that you would revive the churches in this land through the preaching of your word to stir us uh, to, to true and abiding faith and repentance, uh, that you would save the lost and send out um, those to make the gospel known, and that through all of us that you would uh, cause us to be light and salt in the world unto your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.